Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, Presence in all places, and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life. Come and dwell within us. Cleanse us of all stain and save our souls, O good one. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. It's my pleasure to introduce you to our speaker, Mr. Joseph Pierce. A native of England, Joseph Pierce is Director of Pub Book Publishing at the Augustine Institute and Editor of the St. Austin Review, Editor of Faith and Culture, Series Editor of the Ignatius Critical Editions, Senior Instructor with Homeschool Connections, and Senior Contributor at the Imaginative Conservative. His personal website is jpierce.co. The internationally acclaimed author of many books, which include bestsellers such as The Quest for Shakespeare, Tolkien, Man and Myth, and The Unmasking of Oscar Wilde, Joseph Pierce is a world-recognized biographer of modern Christian literary figures. His books have been published and translated into Spanish, Portuguese, French, Dutch, Italian, Korean, Mandarin, Croatian, and Polish. Pierce has hosted two 13-part television series about Shakespeare on EWTN, and has also written and presented documentaries on EWTN on the Catholicism of the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit. He has participated and lectured at a wide variety of international and literary events at major colleges and universities in the United States, Canada, Britain, Europe, Africa, and South America. Welcome, welcome, Mr. Pierce. Good to have you with us again. Well, it's my pleasure. Um, I say I'm honored to be part of the wonderful things you're doing at the Institute. Um, and uh, yeah, it's just a joy to be back. So please do keep inviting me, otherwise, otherwise I'll pine. Okay, so let me explain my modus operandi for the two lectures. Um, so this is going to be on the same topic. It's going to be on Gerard Manley Hopkins. Um, I've got to take you as deep, if you like, into Gerard Manley Hopkins. You have your handout. Um, we're going to be, I'm going to be spending probably the bulk of this first lecture um, talking about Hopkins and Hopkins' um, should we say philosophy of poetry and philosophy of perception, the profundity of his Catholic vision of things and how it harmonizes with the teaching and the doctors of the church. And now, so then we'll talk about how this philosophy plays itself out in the writing of his poetry and how uh, knowing that we, we, we learn how to read his poetry. So on your handout, the, the bulk of it is actually a poem called The Wreck of the Deutschland. And after I finish talking about Hopkins and his philosophy and how that helps us understand his poetry, we're going to plunge into The Wreck of the Deutschland, which is one of the most difficult poems um, probably in the English language. So if you've read it before or tried to read it before and you're com confused, don't worry, because at least the hope would be that by the end of the second lecture next week, you will understand where Hopkins is coming from, how to read his verse. Um, so we'll be referring to the um, to the handout, but probably in the second half of this um, of this lecture, and then for the whole of the next lecture, we'll be engaging with that poem. So so that's where that's where we are. So I'm now going to go into talking about Hopkins. Um, so Gerard Manny Hopkins is, in my judgment, which means not very much, but in the judgment of many more esteemed people, arguably the greatest poet of the Victorian era. Now, Chesterton, of course, wrote a book called The Victorian Age in Literature. The Victorian Age in Literature is in many ways a golden age in literature. There are many uh, 
very few ages that can actually claim to be more illustrious in terms of the beauty and quantity and quality of the literature produced in the Victorian period from 1837 to 1901. Well, Hopkins falls into that category and is arguably the greatest poet of that illustrious period. In other words, he's a great poet. So he's born in 1844. Um, so that's just seven years into the Victorian era. Um, uh, of an Anglican family, and he's raised as an Anglican. He's actually born one day before the reception into the church of blessed John Henry Newman, soon to be Saint John Henry Newman, of course. Um, and uh, that is a very significant date because 1845, the reception of John Henry Newman into the church is really the birth of the Catholic revival in the English speaking world and, and specifically the Catholic literary revival. So Hopkins is being born just as this revival is being born. So uh, that's 1845. In 1863, um, Hopkins goes to Balliol College, Oxford as an undergraduate. That's the same uh, uh, college in Oxford University that for instance, Hilaire Belloc would go to, although Belloc would go, th go there about 30 years later. And then in 1864, the following year, after while Hopkins is at Oxford, Newman publishes his famous Apologia Pro Vita Sua. So his apology for his life. It's his conversion story um, and um, his reasons for his conversion. Uh, this, amongst other things, that, that uh, convinces uh, Hopkins of the truth of Catholicism. And it's blessed John Henry Newman himself who in 1866 receives the young Jeremy Hopkins uh, into the church. He's still an undergraduate at Oxford. There's very deep opposition from his family, who not uh, unusual amongst uh, England, Englishmen of that period was, re was very anti-Catholic. Um, but in spite of that opposition, he's received into the church. In the following year, 1867, he graduates from Oxford University with first-class honors. In 1868, a year later, um, he decides to study for the Jesuit priesthood. And again, the Jesuits are, um, because of uh, lies and propaganda in the official history of England, are really despised by the anti-Catholic uh, elements in England. So this was adding salt to the wound when their son, after becoming a Catholic, uh, which, which they opposed, then actually decides to become a Jesuit priest. So he starts to try to study for the Jesuit priesthood in 1868, so a year after graduating. And as part of that enthusiasm for his new vocation, he decides to have a bonfire of the vanities. And this bonfire of the vanities is the burning of all the poetry he had written up to now. Um, which I actually personally find uh, very sad. <laughs> I'm sure it probably wasn't as good as, as the poetry wrote later, but if you've got a wonderful poet and we've lost this poetry, it's a real loss. Um, but clearly he thought he needed to sort of strip himself bare to, uh, to, to proceed towards the priesthood. And then during uh, his studying for the priesthood in 1872, he discovers uh, the philosophy of blessed Duns Scotus. And as, as um, Hopkins says of this discovery of Duns Scotus, quote, from this time, I was flush with a new enthusiasm. In other words, there was something about being introduced to the philosophy of Duns Scotus, which revolutionized Hopkins's way of seeing reality. And we're going to talk about that soon because this is the way that Hopkins sees reality, which is influenced greatly by the teaching of Duns Scotus, um, is the way that he writes poetry and the way that we need to read his poetry to understand it. Um, and then after not that many years as a priesthood, as a priest and not that many years as a poet, he dies very young um, in 1889, so 45 years old, of typhoid. And during his lifetime, he has a handful of friends, including the poet Robert Bridges, but none of his poetry is published. He's completely unknown. From the, from the perspective of the literary world, he's a nobody, okay? His, his, his 
poetry is unpublished when he dies. And even his friends, because he said his friend Robert Bridges, uh, a poet, and another friend of his was Coventry Patmore, another significant poet of the Victorian era, another convert to Catholicism, somebody I would, I would um, recommend you check out, Coventry Patmore. But I, I can't remember whether it was Bridges or Patmore that said the following, I, I think it was in correspondence with the other, and they said of Hopkins's poetry, and bear in mind these are his friends, and they have a, a great uh, poetic sensibility because they are po very good poets themselves. They said that Hopkins's poetry is um, um, priceless gems embedded in impracticable quartz. Okay, priceless gems embedded in impracticable quartz. So there's sort of sparks of brilliance in there. But it, it's in the midst of all this stuff, which, which is, is impenetrable. You can't actually make sense of it. So if you've had trouble understanding Hopkins's poetry, and certainly the, the wreck of the Deutschland is, is arguably the most difficult, um, you're in good company. <laughs> uh, because his contemporaries would feel exactly the same as you did um, at the time. Now, Hopkins's poetry would not actually be published until 1918. So just as the World War I is coming to an end, so almost 30 years after his death. Now, I want you to bear something in mind here, because, you know, it's very common in our culture to boast of someone being ahead of their time. And normally when you hear that phrase that someone is ahead of their time, it just means that they're up to date. And one thing you can be sure about someone who's up to date is they're going to be out of date very soon. Because as C.S. Lewis said, fashions are always coming and going, but mostly going. So if someone's fashionable, don't take them too seriously. You need something that has more gravitas than that, okay? Something more weight than that. But with Hopkins, we can really and genuinely say he was ahead of his time. Because he's been dead for almost 30 years when his poetry is first published. And then... Once his poetry is published, he becomes at the avant-garde of all sorts of new things in poetry. He's revolutionary. He's doing all these astonishing things we've never seen before. So along with T.S. Eliot, Hopkins is the, is the, is the, uh, the darling of the modernist movement. He's part of the avant-garde. He's ahead of his time 30 years after his death. Now, that is being ahead of your time. Okay? So what was it about Hopkins and his poetry that all of a sudden had an explosive input, impact. The poetry, by the way, was, it was published, um, the only reason it was really published and got any attention was that Robert Bridges published it as an act of loyalty to his friend, um, his long deceased friend. By this time, Robert Bridges is the poet laureate of the UK. So, you know, it's gonna be taken seriously because he's published it. And it did okay, you know, that year's 1920s was doing okay. But in the 1930s, it exploded. I think it would be fair to say that Whereas Eliot was the giant figure in modern poetry in the 1920s with the Wasteland and the Hollow Men, uh, etc. In the 1930s, he was, he was in danger of being eclipsed by Hopkins, this new modern poet. And indeed, there's evidence, and I've written about this, uh, of, of Eliot actually being jealous of, of Hopkins's popularity. Uh, his rival, uh, who has by this time been dead for over 40 years. So what was it about Hopkins's poetry, which was so astonishingly new? And uh, well, we won't be surprised to know that what was new about it was something old. So uh, for instance, you know, that we, we, we are not capable as human beings of creating anything new. Um, only God can create anything new. God makes things from nothing, ex nihilo, we can only make things from other things that already exist. It's what Tolkien calls sub-creation. So I talk sometimes just to give an example of this, of, of a portrait painter. Well, let's say a landscape painter, because there's, there's been more things to describe, but it applies to both. A landscape painter. Um, so a landscape painter takes um, his hands, his eyes, um, an easel, a canvas, um, light, hills, buildings, animals, perhaps some people, all these things that existed already, 
and makes something new out of it. He makes a, a, a portrait painting, uh, sorry, a landscape painting, a painting of a landscape. So, but he's not created anything from nothing. He's taken things that already exist and done things with them to create something good, true and beautiful. That's what a great artist does. So Hopkins didn't do anything new, but what he did do was things that the modern world had forgotten about. So he basically leapfrogged over the whole period of modernity and rediscovered the medieval. And aspects of the medieval had been forgotten by the modern world. So when he reintroduces it, it seems revolutionary and new. So what were these new things? Well, again, if I, if I was in a classroom, um, I, and I should say, by the way, by way of a, a very brief digression, when I've taught the wreck of the Deutschland in, at, at, at college level, we normally take about probably, certainly three, probably four, four and a half hours of class time. We're going to have an hour and a 15 minutes, perhaps, of class time. So I'm not even going to promise, if I'm not even going to try to finish the poem, so you know that up front. <laughs> uh, I'm going to delve into the poem, dive into the poem, get you the feel of the poem, give you some idea how to really get to grips with it, and then leave you to manfully um, go where you need to go afterwards and, and, and grapple with it yourselves. One of my, uh, one of my ambitions, by the way, um, it may never happen. Uh, I have a whole list of books I'd like to write, which is much longer than the books I have written. And, and one of them is I'd love to write a book on the wreck of the Deutschland, just going through each one chapter for each of the stanzas. Um, and I don't know if it'll ever happen, but uh, maybe if I'm Methuselah and I live for hundreds and hundreds of years, that, you know, maybe I don't want to do that though. That's the price too, too high to pay. Um, so, Back to where we were. So the, I don't have a, in a class situation, I have a blackboard or a whiteboard here and I'd write these things down. So you're going to have to grapple with my English accent and I, maybe I'll spell it out and write them down yourself. Because the, the three things that you need to understand to understand Hopkins are as follows. Sprung rhythm. Okay, so S-P-R-U-N-G-R-H-Y-T-H-M. Sprung rhythm. That's the first thing. The second thing is inscape, I-N-S-C-A-P-E, like landscape, but inscape. And the third thing is in stress, I-N-S-T-R-E-S-S, -S, okay? Uh, and th these are the three concepts we're gonna grapple with for a, a large part of this opening lecture. Um, and that will give us the tools we need to dive into Hopkins's poetry. So the important thing about sprung rhythm is it breaks with the tradition of poetry of having a set number of uh, rhythms, beats per line. So the, the standard thing is always, you know, you, you have you know, five feet per line, sorry, five, five uh, beats per line, 10 feet per line, and you got this regular uh, rhythm of, of, of rhythm and rhyme, okay? Hopkins breaks with that. He doesn't count syllables at all. As you'll see with the uh, Wreck of the Deutschland, some lines have 15 syllables on, the next one might have eight. There's no way you can follow that la di da di da di da, la di da di da di da, la di da di da di da, la di da di da di da. You can't do that, Hopkins. And so, how does it have a rhythm, or is it just, you know, an amorphous mess? Well, it isn't an amorphous mess because sprung rhythm is that what you have to, to deal with is not the number of, uh, of beats per line, not the number of syllables per line, counting syllables, but the number of stresses per line. In other words, the number of syllables that are stressed. Now, the best way of explaining this, because Hopkins himself says that what he was doing was following various things that don't have this regular meter. One of them was, was fairy uh, nursery rhymes. So for instance, Three blind mice. So um, it's got basically three rhythms per line, right? Three beats per line, but there's a, a varying number of syllables. So three blind mice, three blind mice. See how they run, see how they run. They all run after the farmer's wife. Did you ever see such a thing in your life? La-di-da, I've forgotten the words. Three blind mice, 
three blind mice. So you see there that it's the same rhythm. There's only three stresses per line. But you know, did you ever see such a thing in your life? Did you ever see such a thing in your life? 11 syllables. So that's the sort of technique that, that uh, Hopkins is using. It doesn't mean there's not a, a, a rhythm to the piece. It just means it's not that regular metronomic rhythm, okay? Um, so the other, other examples of this he, he, he goes by is Anglo-Saxon verse. So again, the medieval. If you read Beowulf or Anglo-Saxon poetry, there's not a regular number of syllables per line. There are regular stresses, a certain number of stresses per line with a pregnant pause in the middle of the line usually. Um, so he's following the form of Anglo-Saxon poetry. So he's going back to the medieval that the modern world had forgotten about. Also, he taught himself Gaelic when he was studying for the priesthood in North Wales. And it also follows the rhythms of medieval Gaelic Welsh poetry. Um, and also the rhythms of Gregorian chants, right? It's the same thing with Gregorian chant, okay? That's why you can use Gregorian chant to read a prose text because it's, the, it's, the, it's, the, it's the, the regular number of stresses, not the number of syllables that matter. And also, and he says, the rhythm of human speech. So if I were to stand here for 45 minutes, speaking in a monotone, you would quite rightly switch off. We don't speak like that. Thanks be to God. We put each other to sleep, right? Uh, there, there is a rhythm to human speech, right? So there's a music, in other words, there's a music that goes on in the, in the rhythm of life that's not necessarily the sort of the count the number of, of beats in, 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 in regular modern, you know, from the early modern time onward, or even from late medieval times onward. Okay, so that's what he's doing. Uh, with sprung rhythm. I don't think I need to say anything more about that at the moment. Before I go on to the philosophical side, so you see the medieval aspect here, okay? He's leapfrogged over the whole modern period and rediscovered the medieval, part of this neo-medievalist thing going on in, uh, the, in the 19th century. So very briefly on that quick digression, um, the romantic poets le leapfrogged over the whole period of the Enlightenment and rediscovered the medieval. This, in the next generation, manifested itself in various ways. The Gothic revival in architecture. So the House of Commons, for instance, and most of the Catholic churches built in the 1830s, once it became legal to build Catholic churches again, were built in the neo-Gothic style, the Gothic revival. The pre-Raphaelite brotherhood in arts, again, the name pre-Raphaelite, pre-Raphael, looking for a purer vision of art, that predated Raphael in the Renaissance. So an early Renaissance medieval vision for 19th century art. And most importantly, from the perspective of the Catholic revival, the Oxford movement um, in the Church of England, of which, of course, the leader was blessed John Henry Newman, that led to uh, the rise of Anglo-Catholicism and then Newman's conversion. And what they did, the, the, the Oxford movement was leapfrog over the whole period of the post-Reformation church, leapfrog over the whole Reformation and try to see a way in which the Anglican church was part of the Catholic church. So Hopkins is part of this neo-medieval thing. He's rediscovered the medieval. We see it in the sprung rhythm and we'll see it in the moment in the philosophy of Duns Scotus, that great medieval scholastic Catholic philosopher. But before I do that, there's one other aspect of the poetic form of Hopkins I want to talk about, and that is the way that he loves words and sounds as music. So he actually uses the language, as all great poets should, in various ways that make the, the, the words become musical for us. So things such as alliteration, assonance, onomatopoeia, um, and the use of double entendre and triple entendre, so one word having two or three meanings, which just enriches the meaning of the poem. So he really loves words. Um, uh, and again, you know, we talk about the Logos. I think that words should never be undervalued. Words are the means by which we actually communicate truth to each other and beauty. Although you can, of course, communicate beauty in other ways, but words are the most uh, obvious way of doing that. 
All right, so that's the form. And now I'm going to get to, which might be the most difficult part, but I don't think it's that difficult. Because what was it about the philosophy of Duns Scotus that, that uh, led to Hopkins to say that from that moment onwards, on discovering it, I was flush with a new enthusiasm? What was it about it? Well, there was a rivalry in the medieval times, as I'm sure you know, between the Dominicans and the Franciscans. And um, the Dominicans, in terms of the intellectual side of things, won in the sense that St. Thomas Aquinas is the preeminent Catholic philosopher and theologian, perhaps, but certainly philosopher, uh, the angelic doctor. The Franciscan answer, or the, 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 the Franciscan equivalent of, 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 of Aquinas was Duns Scotus. Now, all you Thomists out there are probably getting ready to pick up stones and throw them at me if I say, say anything positive about Duns Scotus. First thing I would say before you do throw stones at me, he's blessed Duns Scotus. In other words, the church teaches that he is in harmony with uh, St. Thomas Aquinas in heaven together, singing uh, in, in union, okay, in unison. So that's one thing we want to bear in mind. But we actually get the word dunce, you know, put your dunce's cap on from dunce scotus. Um, because, you know, in, in, the, in the battles, the medieval battles, the Dominicans won, the Franciscans lost. We need to remember that, however, that Thomas Aquinas was wrong on the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception, which dunce scotus was, was, was championing. The, 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 different, the, the big concept in dunce scotus's philosophy which, which was a revolutionary revelation for Hopkins, was his um, concept of heitatis, or heitatis, depends how you want to pronounce your Latin. I'll spell that for you, all right? So you can write this one down. This is basically where Hopkins gets his idea of inscape from. Heitatis, H-A-E-C-C-E-I-T-A-S. Heitatis or heitatis, which means in Latin, thisness. Now, according to Duns Scotus, everything in creation had a thisness. Now, what was controversial about that in medieval times is that Thomas Aquinas, following uh, Aristotle, uh, taught that everything has its quiditas, right? Its whatness. So, a, an example of that would be that if I look out my still just about light enough out there for me to to, to see, I can see trees. Okay. Um, some of them are oak trees. Every oak tree in the world shares its quiddity, its oakness, its whatness with every other oak tree. Right? Uh, in, in another sense, every chair shares its chairness with every other chair in the world, the thing that makes it a chair, regardless of whether the chair is made of wood or plastic or fabric of some other sort or stone. It's not those things. Uh, St. Thomas would say are accidental philosophically. The, what the essence of the chair, the liquidity of the chair is certain things about it, which means you can sit on it, right? Um, so this is quiddity, which, which things share. Duns Scotus agreed with that. He had no problem with any of that. But he said that things also have, as well as a quiditas, they have a hechaitas. As well as a, a whatness, they have a thisness which is to say that every oak tree shares its oak tree-ness with every other oak tree, its quiddity. But every oak tree also has its hechaitas, its thisness, a unique thing about that particular oak tree. Now, some Thomists, and I've had, I've, I've had lots of discussions over the years, by the way, because I'm really, as you might have gathered, enthusiastic about trying to get grips with this, right? And, and what, what would be the objections from certain Thomists to this, to this idea? Because it was certainly controversial in the Middle Ages. And, 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 and it seems to me that the, the best objection I've heard, which I don't think holds water, as I shall, I sh as I shall explain, is that um, uh, it's, you can't have a universal principle of uniqueness. Right or universal principle of individuality. Right, it's it's a it's a uh, an oxymoron. It's self-contradictory. But I would argue against that by saying that as regards ourselves as human beings, we all accept very happily we have a common quiditas, 
a common whatness which we call our shared humanity. We have it all. That's why human life, uh, from 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 uh, conception to the grave, is 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 is, um, is sacrosanct, is sacred, because we. It doesn't matter whether someone is born, unborn, old, young, disabled, fit and healthy. They share the dignity of the human person that comes in that shared quiditas, our shared humanity. Okay, we have no problem with that, of course. But we also have no problem with the idea that each of us is a unique human person, that we're not clones of somebody else, that we have something about us and our personality, which while sharing a common quiddity, a common humanity, is nonetheless unique to us, our own heitetas, our own thisness, our personality, our personhood. Now, you might say, well, that's true of us. Um, but it's not true of lesser creatures, right? We made in the image of God and uh, oak trees are not. To which I would uh, respond, again, risking people picking up stones to throw them at me, that oak trees uh, actually are made in the image of God, right? Because an oak tree is a figment of God's imagination. So we made in the image of God in a much deeper way, and I'll discuss that briefly in case you think I'm a heretic, right? But, but we, we, did not make, we did not make oak trees. We can't make oak trees. God made oak trees. They are product, an image that came from his imagination, figments of his imagination. They're an expression of his divine genius. They are, in some sense, made in his image. When we talk about us being made in his image, it's different because it means that we're divine, in his divine image, because we can love, we can reason, um, we can create, right? So we have certain attributes that are, that are unique to, the, to, to the, the divine that other creatures don't have. That's what makes us special. We're made not just in his image, but in his divine image. Right. But every oak tree out there is unique in the sense that no two oak trees anywhere in the world are the same. God does not make things like a factory. He does not mass produce. He loves things into being, into existence, as unique works of love. Now, again, I've heard objections. No, that's not true. If all the environmental factors were alike, if you planted two acorns side by side, and you, you, could, you could perfectly duplicate an exact uh, environment, they would be identical. In other words, only environmental factors that make the oak trees different. Well, again, you know, I, very interesting. I have friends, good Catholic scientists who are microbiologists who will tell you that no, the uniqueness between two acorns, between two oak trees is at the microbiological level, right? It's in the thing itself. Right, this is, it seems like a long digression. It's important because when Hopkins saw that every oak tree was a unique thing loved into existence by God and therefore somehow reflecting the love of God to him. Oak trees never look the same again. He could never look at an oak tree the same way after that because it's something, there's something of God's presence in it. So God's presence, what Scotus might, what might call hechaetas, Hopkins calls inscape. Okay. The, if you like the, 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 divine, the spiritual landscape of something. You have its physical attributes, but you also have its spiritual attributes. Those things that are, if you like, the divine image in it, the, the image of God in it. So this idea of, of hechaetas or inscape is what um, animates uh, Hopkins's vision of the world. So the final thing is in stress. And in stress is the eureka moment the I have found it or the, the I have seen it moment um, when, um, when, we, when we have the moment of epiphany, the moment of revelation, when we see the inscape of a thing. So we look, we see a sunset and we, uh, unlike most times when we don't see it, right, or it's sort of vaguely aware of it, we see it and we see it as something which manifests the glory of God. And we see God's presence in the sunset. We see God communicating to us in the sunset through the goodness, truth and beauty, which the sunset is. So this moment of, 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 uh, of epiphany, of, of showing forth the inscape of God to us so that we see it is the moment of in stress. 
the moment when we perceive this divine presence in creation. Okay, now, before I go on to the wreck of the Deutschland, I don't think there's anything else I want or need to say. I think I've really overloaded you with lots of stuff already. Um, I want to give some examples, just very easy examples. So from your, I'm going to look at these three poems at the back of your handout briefly. These are just by way of illustrating Inscape um, uh, before we go into the wreck of the Deutschland. So let's, let's turn to God's Grandeur, one of the best known of Hopkins's poems. This is a fairly conventional poem in terms of, of its rhythm and rhyme. It's a sonnet. Um, so it's not like the Wreck of the Deutschland, which is much more difficult. I'm not going to look at the whole poem because it would take too long. But the first two lines here, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. In other words, that we, we need to be seeing the world with our eyes above. By this, I mean our spiritual eyes open. And let's get one thing clear here. And just, just to placate the hardline Thomas out there, that the way we perceive things from the Summa Theologica, from, from, from St. Thomas, tells us how we perceive reality. And Duns Scotus and Hopkins would completely agree with this, that the perception of reality depends upon virtue. In other words, and specifically the virtue of humility. If we have humility, we will have the fruit of humility, which is gratitude. If we have gratitude, our eyes will be open to wonder. If we have wonder, we will be moved to contemplatio, to contemplation, to actually wondering about the meaning of things or the presence of God in things. And the fruit of that contemplation is what St. Thomas calls dilatatio, dilation, the opening of the mind and the heart into the fullness of the real, into the fullness of reality. So again, these modes of perception, which is exactly what we're seeing in Hopkins here. Humility, gratitude, wonder, contemplation, dilation, dilatatio, openness. So that process, if we have humility and we follow that process of perception that St. Thomas tells us about in Summa, we will see that the world is charged with the grandeur of God. Every single thing in it is full of this, if you like, spiritual charge that flames out like shining from shook foil. It's there for us to see if we have our eyes open in wonder. Of course, the absence of humility is pride. And one thing that goes in an indissoluble marriage with pride, as the, that great philosopher Jane Austen will tell us, pride and prejudice go hand in hand. If we, instead of having humility, we have pride, we will not, uh, we will not have gratitude. Therefore, our, our eyes will not be open to wonder. Therefore, we will not be moved to contemplation. Therefore, we will not have the opening of the mind. What we'll have is a closing of a mind. Pride prejudices our perception of things. Um, and leads us to the golemizing of ourselves. We become shriveled, shrunken um, creatures, not the full divine image person we're meant to be. So again, sec second stanza here of the, um, of, the, uh, of the sonnet. And for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness deep down things. But when you actually have... Uh, eyes of wonder that can contemplate reality, they're open to this deep down in everything. There's a freshness, you know, a living. There's a wonderful phrase in, in, in Shakespeare's The Tempest, the quick freshes. He's talking about, you know, it, it's an island. It's surrounded by salt water. What's absolutely crucial for survival is the quick freshes. Here, the older meaning of the word quick, which means alive, alive, living, fresh water, the quick freshes. There's the quick freshes in everything, the dearest freshness deep down things. And why? Because the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods with warm breast and with, ah, bright wings. Why is that? Because God himself, like a mother hen, is mothering existence into being and mothering us into seeing it. So the other one I want to show you here is as King Fesher's Catch Fire. 
As kingfishers catch fire, dragonflies draw flame. As tumbled over women, rowdy worlds, stones ring. So kingfishers, not just birds. If you see them with eyes of wonder, they catch fire. Their bright colors in the sun as they dart around. You just see a glimpse of a spark like a, like a shooting star. Kingfishers catch fire. They're not just birds. Dragonflies draw flame. Again, the brightness of the dragonfly. It's, it's a light. It's a blaze with beauty. And tumbled over women, roundy well, stones ring. And it's not just visual beauty. It's the beauty of music. That even a, a, a stone that falls into a well is echoing off like a bell. Is a, a thing of beauty. You know, it talks about bells. Each mortal thing, each thing subject to decay, the whole of creation, right? Each mortal thing does one thing and the same. Deals out that being indoors, each one dwells. In other words, it is what it is. And what it is, is that thisness that God has given to it. Whether it's a, a stone and not just a stone, by the way, it's not just the stone, it's the stone, in this case, doing something, the stone in action, the stone falling and making music. The kingfisher not just being a kingfisher, but the kingfisher flying in the sunlight. So it, these things do what they're meant to do, which is not just the biological function, but they, they shine forth the goodness, truth, and beauty of the creator. Selves, the H.A. attest, right? Selves, this is themselves. Selves goes itself, myself it speaks and spells, crying, what I do is me, for that I came. So we usually look at an oak tree, you shouldn't be seeing something made of wood, and, or if you see it at all, you should be seeing something which is crying out to you, what I do is me, I am an oak tree, look at me, see me, use me as a, as a, as a means of edification, right? raise up your heart and soul towards God by perceiving me. Because rising up, raising up your heart and mind towards God is its definition of prayer. Allow God's creatures to be a catalyst for prayer and praise. That's basically what Hopkins is saying here. Because that's what they are if we see them as God sees them. Remember, God only creates things that are good. And again, at the end of it, why? Why is this so? Why do kingfishers catch fire? Why do dragonflies draw flame? For Christ plays in 10,000 places, lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes, not his, to the Father, through the features of men's faces. In other words, on a lower level, the hectares of lower creatures shine forth who they are, what they are. But we, if we see each other for what we are, we don't see fallen, broken humanity. We see the face of Christ who works in us. He plays in 10,000 places. Lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes, not his. Through the Father, through the features of men's faces. In other words, we need to be able to perceive with wonder and contemplation and open our minds and hearts to the, to, to the, to, to the Christ that's in each of our neighbors. Easier said than done. But that's what Hopkins is calling us to do. Now, and the other one, Rosa Mystica, but I just wanted this here because this is so uncomplicated. I mean, it's a great devotion to Blessed Virgin Mary. It's been, it's been, music's been put to it. It's a great hymn. Um, uh, and I, I just want to put it on here because, well, I love the Blessed Virgin Mary. And if you read this, you'll see exactly how much Jeremy Manny Hopkins also loved the Blessed Virgin Mary, the mystic rose here, one of the titles, of course, from the Litany of Loretto. Um, okay, so that's all that I'm going to say uh, by way of preparation for the wreck of the Deutschland. You know, uh, Mr. Pearson, we're just, what a blessing as you were talking here, uh, especially as you were getting into these poems. I was thinking of my reading, I think I've shared with you my love for St. Ephraim before um, and his hymns on paradise. And, and much of what you were saying was just sparking all of these memories of reading that, that, that great work. But, uh, but uh, I'm actually going to ask the first question for you, which is going to be something I think it will be helpful to all of us. The struggle that we have with all of this business of, of perceiving. So as I was thinking, isn't that our great desire? You know, Lord, let me see. I was thinking of Joseph Peeper's uh, Only the Lover Sings, you know, uh, learning to see again. And um, it, we, we want to see. We want to perceive. But, but we, we struggle today, I think, more than, than, than maybe in former generations. 
I read the, the opening lines, and by the way, anyone who hasn't read St. Ephraim's Hymns on Paradise, I highly recommend it, uh, especially going, you know, for meditation in church and things like that. For um, It's a very beautiful, biblically rich meditation upon paradise and then really all of salvation history. But, you know, he does something, and I think, I think uh, Hopkins does something here that all of us are kind of thirsty for. Um, and that is this, this ability to perceive. I mean, nature is never spent. And, uh, and you were saying about it's being charged, and it's so beautiful. And it's something all of us want in our hearts to be able to see, especially in the other, the image and likeness of God. And I think that's what the saints get, right? They, they, they're able to see. And, and, and um, so I'm just wondering, you just talk for just a couple minutes on, from your heart on that business and what we face today in our modern society, the struggles we face uh, in this regard. Yeah, I think, you know, long before I discovered Jeremy Hopkins, by the grace of God, I discovered G.K. Chesterton, who's, who's looking over my shoulder here behind me, um, keeping me company as he always has since I first was introduced to him. You know, and he taught me uh, exactly the same lesson Hopkins teaches, that we have to see with eyes of wonder, eyes of humility, and eyes of gratitude. And, he, and one of my favorite lines from him, which I think he wrote this when he was very young, is, uh, give me miraculous eyes to see my eyes, those terrible crystals made alive in me more something than all the things they see. Let down with one word there from memory. Um, but yeah, again, you know, give me eyes to see my eyes. I mean, what is this thing that, that, that allows us to actually see the glories of God's cosmos all around us? You know, we've got to see the things we're blind to, right? Things that are right in front of us that we don't normally see. And, and that, if we, if, we, if we attain that, and of course it can only be attained by the grace of God, uh, you know, it's a fruit of humility, um, but that, it actually trans, transfigures us. Um, and transforms our lives. And, and, and that sense of wonder can and will, by the grace of God, because it's a fruit of the grace of God, save our souls. I like that answer, and I'm actually going to take that as the, uh, the answer to our first, the first question that we had posted here. I think that um, he, there was a question about um, that you feel the spiritual pressure that, or, or, or insight from constant, uh, uh, felt from consolation and delight. Anyways, the question is basically the same. Uh, uh, Dr. Howell, who's a, who, who's a, one of our teachers here at the Institute and is uh, participating this evening. Welcome. Welcome, Dr. Howell. Um, he asked, do you think that Hopkins was troubled by increasing secularization in the Victorian period? It seems that his poetry was intended to counter uh, just seeing nature as a mechanism, as Descartes had thought. That's a very good point. Certainly, uh, you know, that scientism was in the ascendant during the Victorian period, and it was, if you like, the, the, the rival meta-narrative to orthodoxy. Um, and in that sense, of course, it's very similar to today. Uh, you know, that you basically have a Thomistic way of seeing reality, uh, what the Christians would call a realist way of seeing reality, or you actually have this scientific way of seeing reality. But yes, Hopkins was certainly um, in a very similar culture to the, to the one we find ourselves. Now, the Victorian age was a great age of, inverted commas, progress, right? All sorts of new inventions. Uh, the Industrial Revolution was, was under 100 years old, which completely transformed the fabric of human society. You have all these new uh, post-enlightenment philosophers with, with new and, and, and largely destructive ideas. So, of course, he's part of that culture. But I do think that once he discovers Dun Scotus, he transcends it. I don't think he's threatened by it. I think he's just, first of all, I just think he's, he's um, praying and praising God uh, in everything he writes at this point and hoping that in itself would be a, you know, like a, a beacon in the darkness for everybody else. So he's not a rhetorical poet. He's not doing what Chesterton often does, of course, and actually argue with, with the materialists. He's merely showing something which is much better, much brighter, much healthier, and letting that really speak for itself. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, Patricia Boyle's asking, um, she says, I'm really interested in Hopkins' Franciscan influence. If I want to take a deeper dive, what writings of Duns Scotus should I read? I would, I would actually suggest that if, 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 if the purpose 
is to understand Hopkins, then you'd be taking out a, um, a, um, a sledgehammer to crack a nut. Um, you don't have to be well-versed beyond the idea of Hechayatas to get where Hopkins is coming from here. Hopkins wasn't a scholar of, of Dunscotus. Hopkins took this idea of Dunscotus and ran with it. So I've done my best to certainly try to explain what Hechayatas is. And I think that's all you need if what you, what you want is to understand Hopkins. You don't have to dive deeper into Dunscotus. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Hello, good for a Thomas. I don't have to go read Scotus. That's, that's good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, Kelly's asking about, is there, a, I'm not sure I'm going to get this question right exactly, but maybe you can draw something out of it. Is there a modern poet who is able to domesticate beauty to paper like Hopkins? Well, first thing I think Hopkins would be horrified at the suggestion that he domesticated beauty. Um, I, I, I think he might say that beauty domesticated him. Um, you know, that the, the, the really, you know, that there's, as, as, as C.S. Lewis would say in, in, uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan is not a tame lion. Um, God is not a tame God, and the beauty and majesty of creation is not a tame creation. Um, it, 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 it's bigger and better and more marvelous than we are. We are meant to see it on our knees. We don't domesticate it, it domesticates us. So I would say that first, and having said that, uh, oh, yes, yeah, a modern poet that somehow has the Hopkinsian um, essence. Well, one thing I would say more generally, um, yes, I could name some. Uh, I, there are some very, very good contemporary Catholic poets out there now. I, I'm, I'm blessed to edit a magazine called the St. Austin Review. We publish several new poems, contemporary poems by contemporary Catholic poets in every issue. Uh, I, could, I could mention several, but I, one that I'm particularly enthusiastic about at the moment, but I don't know if she's actually published any, a book of poetry, so you'd have to take out a subscription to the St. Austin Review, um, is this Denise Sobilo. So I, I, that, that's the way you pronounce her surname, S-O-B-I-L-O. -I, I mean, she may have a website, I haven't checked. But her poetry is marvelous in this sense. I mean, marvelous in, in, the, in the literal sense of the word. It, it is something we marvel at because it marvels at creation. And on a deep philosophical level, Nice, nice. Thank you. I could name um, others, but but you get yeah. the point. Good, good. Professor, thank you again for your uh, for your wonderful teachings this evening. We look forward My, to next week. My pleasure, Father. Thanks for having me. Yeah. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.